0: I want to read to you from Luke 1, verses 30 through 33. This is the word of Almighty God. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Pray with me, friends. Lord, I am rejoicing just in what we sang. From beginning to end, Christ the story, his the glory. And now we get to open that story up, and now we get to rejoice in it. God, my prayer today is that you will, in fact, be glorified. Teach us, grow us, change us, give us joy. That's our prayer. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You can be seated. So let's tell the story of the Bible, the story of God. Before there was time, God planned to redeem a people for himself, and then in the beginning, God created everything that there is. God created mankind in his image and placed the man under covenant obligation to God. Adam had a choice. Obey God and live. Disobey God, and that will lead to death. We call that the covenant with Adam or the covenant of works. When Adam... Rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit. The Lord God showed his mercy. After all, God was going to fulfill his plan to redeem. Bless you twice. And God promised he was going to send someone into the world who would crush the devil and set things right. Then God chose one line of the human family tree. The line through Seth to carry forward the promise of a rescuer to come. God preserved Noah and his family, descendants of that line, when the rest of the world was destroyed by the flood. And God covenanted with all creation that he would never again destroy the world until he first fulfilled everything he had promised in the covenant of redemption. Well, eventually God made nations out of the world, different languages, different people groups, all the rest. And God chose the descendants of a man, Abraham, to be the ones who would bring the promised one into the world. God made a covenant with Abraham that made some unconditional and some conditional promises. On the conditional side, if Abraham and his offspring would obey God's command to circumcise their sons, God was going to give them blessing, offspring, land, and dominion over that land. But if they chose not to obey God's command, they were going to be cut off Individuals would be cut off, though the nation itself would survive because God was going to fulfill His promises. On the unconditional side, God promised that one of Abraham's offspring would bring the blessing of God to the whole world, all nations. God was going to sovereignly see to it that Abraham's family, no matter what, was going to birth the rescuer who he promised in the beginning. Well, God moved Abraham's descendants into the land of Egypt. They lived there for four centuries and that family grew into a strong nation. Then by the mighty power of God, in keeping with the unconditional promises God had made, God led the nation of Israel up out of the land of Egypt after rescuing them from slavery. And God offered a covenant relationship to the nation of Israel. And in this covenant... God spelled out for Israel the standards they've got to abide by if they wish to remain in his favor as a people. If they obey, God will give them the blessing, offspring, land, and dominion that he promised Abraham. But if they would not obey the terms and the laws of the covenant, the nation would forfeit their status as God's prized possession. And the people agreed to the covenant. They said, yes, three times. They willingly submitted themselves to the terms of the agreement. And in many ways, that covenant at Sinai is simply the continuation of and the clarification of the this-worldly works-based part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But wrapped up inside the covenant is the unbreakable promise from God that one was coming that he would send into the world who would redeem all the elect for God. So there's the summary of where we've been. Does that sound like let me think about 7 weeks of sermons to you? I hope so. We've seen the covenant of redemption, the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, and the covenant with the nation through Moses. Today, We're going to move quickly through the story of God's working through history so that we can look at his covenant with David. I want to show you the background of the covenant, the covenant itself, and the covenant's importance. And hopefully you still like the storytelling of all this because I think this is a load of fun. So you ready to jump into the background of the covenant? All right. At Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel agreed to a covenant with God. They would be his subjects. He would be their Lord. I will be your God. You will be my people. They would obey the law gave and God would preserve the people and bless the people. And God included in the law some things. There were things in that law, right? You guys have read Leviticus. Well, you least start it in your Bible in a year plan before you give up, right? How many of you have given up in Leviticus at one time or another in your life in a Bible in a year plan? Let's be honest with each other. If anybody's not admitting it, y'all are a bunch of liars. And we know about liars, they talk about them in Revelation. All right, so, so, God included in the law the sacrificial system. You guys know about that, right? The sacrificial system in Leviticus makes a way for the nation to be preserved when they sinned, if they repented and followed and began again to follow the ways of the Lord. Included in the covenant is the nation willingly agreeing that if they disobey the laws of God, God's going to judge them. Now, before the people left the mountain, therefore, God gave them a little bit of a building project. Moses guided the nation to build the tabernacle, which is like a a portable, it's like a tent, right, that they could carry to the desert, but it's like a portable sanctuary that the nation could carry around. And God told the leaders to make sacred objects that they needed for the preservation of the nation. Things like the altars, the lampstands, the Ark of the Covenant. That's important. And God told the priests exactly how to make the right sacrifices and the right offerings to keep the nation alive under God's favor and not be destroyed for their rebellion. Now, let's make a couple side note points here. I want you to take note. The sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus, which all y'all stop reading, it is glorious and it's a good thing. The sacrificial system did precisely what God intended it to do. But understand this, the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus were never about giving individuals God's saving grace. A person who never believed in God could make the offerings in Leviticus, right? A person who didn't believe at all in God could live as a good citizen of Israel even with no form of spiritual salvation coming to their lives. The book of Hebrews tells us that that the repetition of those offerings day day after day after day after day after day proves to us that there was no actual personal spiritual life granted to anybody because of the critters that they offered. So if a person was going to be saved, something bigger, something better had to come along. Salvation for people has to be a gift of righteousness given to them by God. Just like we saw Abraham because God gave Abraham righteousness as a gift when Abraham believed his promises in Genesis 15, 6. So here's a question. Travis, are you suggesting nobody was saved in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant? That is not what I'm saying. People were saved under the Old Covenant, but not because of the Old Covenant. All Old Testament saints who were saved and forgiven by God were saved because God granted them grace as they believe him and his promises. No animal sacrifice can take away sins. But God gave grace to the true believers under the old covenant because he knew He was going to send his son to be the actual sacrifice to pay for the sins of every single person who would ever trust in him. And while we're pausing and thinking about details here, because, you know, why not? We're here. Let me also remind you that the covenants of God always had these little priestly Kingly languages. Ben read for us in our doctrinal lesson about the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, right? There is priest and king language all over these covenants. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was set up like a priest. He was put in a sacred place. He was called to work and keep the garden, which are the same two Hebrew words God used when he assigned priests to care for the tabernacle which was itself a sacred place. Noah offered sacrifices in worship of the Lord. So did Abraham. The Levitical system says the descendants of Aaron were supposed to be priests for the nation of Israel. There's priest stuff all over the covenants. There's also kingly theme all over the covenants, right? Adam was made in the image of God, and the the concept of image brings kingship to mind. Adam was told by God to have dominion over the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply, to rule over the world. Noah was given a very similar charge, to fill and rule the world. God promised Abraham that he would have offspring and that kings would come from his family line. You read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see references to kings who are going to rule in Israel. So, if you keep the flow of this big story in mind, Keep in mind, God has made a promise that somebody's going to come into the world and he's going to get right what Adam did wrong. And if the one who's going to rescue God's people is going to fulfill Adam's responsibilities, what's he got to do? He's going to have to be perfect. He's going to have to do something to atone for the sins of those who have sinned against God but are the elect. He's going to have to serve as a priest and he's going to have to rule as a king. Let's get back to the story. Once the nation left the mountain, the people proved that they as a nation would not faithfully follow God's lead. Does this surprise you in any way? In fact, because of Israel's disobedience, God forced the people to wander in the wilderness over the next four decades. There was an entire generation of people who died in the wilderness, without ever entering the promised land. Well, then a new generation came along and grew into leadership, and God reaffirmed His covenant with the people. By the way, that's the entire point of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy spells out the law of God for Israel for a second time in a way that would prepare the people to enter the borders of the land and settle there as a nation. Did you guys know, by the way, that the name Deuteronomy literally means second law? Deutero, second, namas, law. It's the second, it's the reiteration of the law because that younger generation that was now the adults in Israel needed to hear it and reaffirm it so that they could enter the promised land and live under it. Now, a long time before Israel has any kings, God used individuals to serve as sort of general political leaders, sometimes judges. Moses, Moses appointed a man named Joshua to be his successor in leading the nation. Joshua led the people into the promised land. And when Joshua got old and was ready to die, he reaffirmed the covenant that God made with Israel. He declared God had faithfully kept his end of the bargain even as he warned Israel that the nation would suffer greatly if they didn't obey the word, the words and the ways of God. Look at Joshua 23, 23 14 to 16. If you, if you want to look at it, you can. You can just write the reference down and listen if you want. But this is an important verse. A lot of people, I'm, I'm on side notes here just so you know, a lot of people would say, Oh, God never fulfilled His promises to Israel. Have you ever heard anybody say that God didn't fulfill His promises to Israel? Oh, there's so many things God still has to do, right? You hear people say that? Listen to what Joshua, the leader of Israel, said just before he died in Joshua 23, 14 to 16. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your own, in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you. Just real quick, do you think Joshua thinks God still needs to fulfill some stuff, or do you think he thinks he's done it? All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. You see where Israel is? God has kept his word and now they are under a workspace covenant that says obey, you keep the land, disobey, you don't. Okay, so after Joshua, the nation is governed by judges, leaders that God raised up from time to time to lead the nation or maybe just a particular tribe, especially in times of crisis. And over the years, Israel rebelled against God and the Lord brought consequences on them because of their unfaithfulness, which was keeping in with the covenant promises. And when the nation repented and they cried out to God for mercy, God raised up a judge and rescued them just as He had promised to do. And all of this takes us to the book of 1 Samuel and, and just before 1000 BC. God has kept His word. God has given His people the land that He promised to give them. But let me ask you, do you think the people are faithful? Well, let me ask you, how faithful are you? And you've got the Holy Spirit. During the days of Samuel, the last of the judges, the people of Israel asked God to give them a king so that they could be led and governed like all their neighboring nations. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verses 4 through 7. I'll give you a second to find it, because we're going to be in this for just a second. 1 Samuel 8. I still hear you flipping. Got it? All right. First Samuel 8, look at 4 to 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. i just like to add, this is such a sweet-hearted people. Came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they rejected me from being king over them. The people's demand that God give them a king was a rejection of the Lord his covenant, and his ways. Samuel tries to warn them of the negative consequences of that decision, but they will not listen. Look down at verses 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Y'all remember I told you last week, so much about the law was to keep Israel from ever looking like the nations around them. And here they say, we demand a king so we can be just like the nations around us. Sam Renahan helps us to see how bad this was when he writes, the people don't just want a king. They want a king like all the nations have. One who will not just fight for them, but will judge them. In other words, they want new laws. They want new religion. They want new authority. They don't want a king to lead them under God. They want a king to lead them away from and apart from God. They want a king after their own heart. Well, God allows the people to have a king that fits their desires. The Bible says he's a man named Saul. They said he was a strong, tall, handsome man. Just what my wife wanted. (laughs) Don't always get what you want. He fit the profile of what the people wanted, but Saul did not have a true heart for God. Then Saul died. God set David on the throne of Israel. David was a man after God's own heart. David wasn't a perfect man, but even with seasons of great failure in his life, David trusted in the Lord and he returned to God in repentance time and time again. And this leads us to the making of the covenant with David. So turn with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to highlight for us this key covenant in Scripture the davidic covenant god's covenant with david so second samuel 7 is where we need to be you find it still awake thank you all right now verse 1 when the king lived in his house and the lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies the king said to nathan the prophet see now i dwell in a house of cedar but the ark of, the, of god dwells in a tent and Nathan said to the king, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Don't you love David's sweetheart here? Right? He wants the worship of God to be somewhere better than a tent. David wants to build the temple for the glory of God. Verses 4 to 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God sends a message back to David, right? Through Nathan, look, I appreciate the gesture, but it's not your task. To build a house for God to live in. Now, the next bit is the part of the passage where God's going to make a covenant with David. And I want you to notice as you read it, how much of the normal covenant patterns right here. There's a relationship that's already present, but it's going to be formalized and established There's going to be God making promises. There are going to be stipulations, consequences for people who might go against the relationship. And as we've seen in all the other covenant passages, God is going to show us things that clearly focus on David and his immediate descendants in a this-worldly law-based obey or disobey relationship. But at the same time, we're going to see some promises that have to be bigger than David, bigger than this life. They are God-only promises. So verses 8 to the beginning of 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. There's God pointing out his past faithfulness, his relationship with David. It already exists. It's going to be made stronger. Keeping in verse 9. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So, God is promising what He's going to do. He's going to bless David. He's going to make David's name great. He's going to bless Israel. He's going to give them land. He's going to give them safety from their enemies, just like what God promised. In the covenant with Abraham or in the covenant with Moses. God is going to be, he's willing to be the God of this nation and to give them blessing and a safe land in which to dwell. In fact, I would tell you folks, there is no biblically faithful way you can separate the covenant with Abraham from the covenant with Moses from the covenant with David. Can't do it. Now, end of verse 11 and following. Here it is. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. So David wanted to build God a house, a temple for the holy dwelling place of the ark. God says to David, I, in fact, David, will build you a house, a family dynasty. Verses 12 to 15, God is making a promise. It looks like it fits Solomon and Solomon's descendants very well, right? Solomon's going to be born. He's going to be the king. He's going to build the temple for God. His throne is going to be established for Strongly made secure. When a descendant of David's, including Solomon, sins against the Lord, God will discipline that individual to correct him. But God will not choose another family to be the chosen kingly family. David's line is it. There's not going to be a third option here. But something here is bigger. Verse 13. God says, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, we read, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That was three forevers. In this section, three times, God declares that the throne of David's line will be established forever. Now, you all think Solomon reigns as king eternally? No. But something about David's family throne is never going to fade. So just like the promise of God to the children of Abraham, it is possible for individuals in David's line to disobey God and face God's judgment. But because of God's covenant promise here, God will always preserve somebody from this line until the day when all of God's promises are fulfilled. Like Abraham and Adam before, the Davidic king will serve as the representative for his people. If the king obeys God's law, the people are blessed. If the king disobeys God's law, the people are in trouble. By the way, that's still true in almost any nation, isn't it? When the government obeys and does things in the ways of God, the people tend to be blessed. When the government is evil, the people tend to have a hard time. You can apply that to the land in which you live right now if you'd like. And if we connect the dots rightly here we connect the dots rightly, we're going to see that the one God promised from the beginning, the one who's going to accomplish God's plan, the one who's going to stomp the devil, he will be a king from David's line. So there's the background. There's the covenant. Let's talk about the importance. Why is it important that you know, especially at Christmas time? that God made this promise to David. Well, if you follow the history of Israel, you see that within a century of David's rule, the kingdom was divided. You know that, right? Most of the tribes of Israel break away from the Davidic king's rule. The land is divided between the northern kingdom that they call Israel and the southern kingdom that they call Judah. The Davidic kings rule the smaller southern kingdom. And God does not reunite the land. For most of the Old Testament, we watch as ruler after ruler after ruler arises in the northern kingdom and leads the people further and further and further away from God. Prophets arise to warn the people that they're in danger of facing the wrath of God. He promised it in the covenant if they disobeyed, but the people won't listen and in the year 722 BC, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the invading Assyrian Empire. Well, the kingdom of Judah under the Davidic kingly line doesn't fare a lot better. Some kings are godly, but many of the kings and the one queen they had are not. Eventually, the southern kingdom go; it gets wicked. And it gets wicked enough to earn the judgment of God as well. And God allows the Babylonian Empire to come in and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, starting in 606 B.C., climaxing with the total destruction of the temple in 586. The people of Judah, the Jews, because the word Jew is a shortening of the word Judah, are held captive under the Babylonian Empire's rule for 70 years. And God brings the people back out of the land of Babylon. He puts them back in the land. He lets them build a little miniature version of the temple. But you do not again see a strong, a strong descendant of David enthroned. You never again see a strong king from the line of David enthroned. But we got the covenant with David, which clarifies the covenant at Sinai which clarifies the covenant with Abraham. God says he's going to bless all the nations through one of Abraham's offspring. God's going to have kings born to Abraham. God is going to permanently establish a kingdom from David's line. God is going to send somebody into the world to crush the devil to accomplish his work of his plan of redemption. How in the world is this going to work? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. As I read this, I want you to listen to the references in Isaiah 9 that show you this is God promising to send the one who will bless the world and he will fulfill God's covenant with David. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, super familiar for this time of year. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me just ask you as an aside does that verse ring more sweetly as you tell the story? What is God gonna accomplish? He's gonna send to us a particular one, a chosen one. By the way, you know what the word for chosen one, anointed one, is? Christ, Messiah. He's going to come into our world as a child, a son, and he will rule. He will be good. We're going to call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will bear the responsibility of governing. He will rule on the throne of David. And notice that there will be no end of his reign. There will be no time limit. No geographical limit to this one's rule. Yes. In Isaiah's day, it's around 700 BC when Isaiah wrote, on the this worldly works-based side of the covenant, the descendants of David have been facing rightly the chastening of God because the kingdom has rebelled against God. But on the God-only spiritual eternal promise side of things, God's letting us know He is still preserving inside of Judah, even if they've gotten wicked, He is keeping safe the promise. He's preserving in Judah the line of David. And God is promising that he's going to send to us a king from that line who will rule not just the land of Israel, but the whole wide world. He'll rule not just for a few years, but forever. He'll rule not with some goodness and a few mistakes, but perfectly, flawlessly, wonderfully. He's going to be just. He's going to be righteous. He's going to accomplish God's plan. Let me show you one more thing about the king to come from David's line in Psalm 110. Turn to Psalm 110. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4, and I won't make you flip more. Look, we're trying to tell a big story. You've got to turn some pages. Psalm 110, verses 1 to 4. You guys can see if this sounds familiar to you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth shall be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This psalm is something we see the author of Hebrews return to multiple times. Jesus likes to quote it too. It tells us that there's a descendant of David, a king from David's line. He's going to be lord over even David, greater than David. The king who will come from David will somehow be greater than the founder of the dynastic line. How do you do that? Verse 4 tells us that the king to come is also going to be a priest, an eternal priest. Adam, in the garden, was supposed to serve the Lord as a priest. Adam was to serve the Lord as a regent king. Adam was to obey God. Just follow one command. And he earns life for himself and all of his offspring forever. Adam failed. God promised he was going to send another person into the world who would set things right. It was not Noah. It was not Abraham. It was not Moses. It was not the entire nation of Israel united. Neither was it King David but God kept making promises. God kept promising and promising and promising to preserve the people until a day would come when God would fulfill every good thing He promised He would bring. Now, let me let you in on a little spoiler secret God did it. God sent someone into the world, born of woman, to crush the devil. God sent someone into the world not corrupted by sin who could fulfill all the requirements of the covenant of works and be the representative for all of God's chosen people. God sent someone into the world to be a true and better Adam, like we sang earlier. He sent someone into the world descended from Abraham who brings God's blessing to people from every people group on earth. God sent someone into the world who would be the one and only priest that we would ever need to put us in a right relationship with God and grant us God's grace. God sent someone into the world descended from David who sits on the throne of heaven right now today and who promises he's going to come back to this earth and rule it with justice and with righteousness Forever, and that one's name is Jesus. Christians, we need to hear this story again and again and again because it's a true story, and it's the story of your only hope. As Christmas approaches, Realize this is the time we set aside to celebrate the coming of the one God promised and promised and promised and then really did bring into the world. When you think about the covenant with David, particularly focus your mind on the fact that Jesus Christ is your king. Worship Jesus. Serve Jesus. Give your obedience to Jesus. Take joy in knowing that no matter what things look like in this world today, The universe is ruled by your king. And he's the only king who's ever going to rule forever. And if you haven't yet come to know Jesus, you might be thinking, what in the world am I listening to all this story about? I want you to understand the story that we're telling today. It's a true story. And it's a big story. Everything that we're talking about here boils down to one question for you. Are you okay with God? See, all of us, all of us have sinned against God. You know that, don't you? We've earned the judgment of God. And our only hope is to have his pardon and his forgiveness. And the only one who can pardon us is King Jesus. So friends, believe Jesus came to this earth and died to pay for your sins. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave and is alive right now today. Surrender yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. Ask Jesus, please, Lord Jesus, save my soul. And find true life. In the Savior King, God sent to fulfill his promises. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, you know how great is our need of mercy. You know how deeply we long for a true king, a compassionate king, a Savior king. You know, Lord, how much we need to be ruled by someone who can represent us before you. And Lord, we just say thank you so much that not only did you make a bunch of promises, you fulfilled a bunch of promises because Jesus is Son of God, descendant of Abraham, descendant Of David, true king of kings. And Lord, we know this. We know Jesus did not come in the first Christmas to a throne room, he came to a stable. He did not first find himself enthroned. His first crown, it's a crown of thorns because he came to die to rescue us first. But we know that Jesus is king. He reigns, and he will return. Help us to be yielded to our Savior. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.